we base it on feelings. And actually, people do it backwards. So they go into relationships looking for love. And that's if once that becomes the foundation, because love is based on feelings and anything that you do that's based on feelings is going to be unstable. Feel good today, bad tomorrow. But if you do it based on compatibility, that becomes a solid foundation. Then you're compatible. You start to have an affinity for them. So if you're looking for a romantic relationship and you start to have affinity, love is going to be built on top of something that's solid. We're compatible. Right. The We've got integrity. I, I know I can trust this guy. I know I can trust this woman. Welcome to season six of Black Family Table Talk. We are your hosts, Tony and Tony. Listen in weekly as we share unique stories that inspire, build, and give voice to strengthen Black families. This season is sponsored by Franz Body Care. These are handmade products made from organic ingredients. I personally recommend you try Free Me Deodorant. It really works, and it's free of aluminum, talc, perfumes, and other harmful pore-clogging substances. You can shop these and other Black-owned businesses on our website at blackfamilytabletalk.com. Welcome to Black Family Table Talk. I am so excited to have you. Um, you are kicking off our sixth season. So um, we are excited not to be remiss. We went to Howard together. No question. Thank you. <laughs> you know, it just seems like I always get to mention Howard almost every every episode. For some reason or another, it just has this big footprint in my life and have access to some of the greatest minds in the world. So uh, saying that, we thank you and thank you for being a part of the broadcast today. Um, so we, this, this is a hot topic, <laughs> relationships. Yeah, some people even get triggered by it, you know, but, uh, but you know, everybody talks about it, but you wrote a book about it. And that is that is commendable because I think the conversation needs to be had. I think as descendants of of the African diaspora and how we landed here on this in this United States, our history certainly does impact how we relate to one another. And um I think it's it's a topic that definitely needs to be explored and it cannot be explored enough. How did you come about being this, um, I don't want to say an authority, I would say an authority. You wrote a book. So how did how did this come about? What sparked your interest and obvious passion for this topic? Can we can we start with a little background first? Yeah. Yes. I've read some of your bio that was available online. Okay. And you're a business person by trade coach, uh, working with um, CEOs. So I, I, I would be interesting if you can give us a background on what you do in that area and then kind of pivot. How do you go from that to relationship coaching? Or is, is, is that the proper title you use? Relationship coach or relationship expert? How, how do you identify yourself in that area? So I'm going to answer your question last. Okay. And, and so we'll, we'll, You'll see how we get there. So um, 
if I go back a little ways, I, I've run a number of companies as an executive. And so that experience of running company, like, you know, fairly significant companies, uh, being like that COO, the man in charge and reporting only to that one, you know, guy above me, uh, that gave me a lot of experience in, in transforming corporate culture, accountability, <clears throat> making companies do things that they initially, like people didn't know how to do. So at some point, uh, I became what you call this executive coach. And so CEOs hire me when they're looking to produce a breakthrough, except they don't know how to do it with existing resources. So much of what I do revolves around creating disruptive uh, strategies and supporting them and executing that strategy and then transforming corporate culture so that people, so the culture doesn't sabotage this breakthrough initiative, right? So a great example would be uh, you look at Steve Jobs and this iPad, you know, um, iPod. I mean, imagine, and I wasn't there, <clears throat> him saying, look, we're going to make a device that makes the Walkman obsolete. And people are like, dude, what are you talking about? You know, you've been smoking, you know, you know <laughs> why are we competing with iPods? You know, I mean, Walkman, we made this big, beautiful computer, cost $2,000, blah, blah, blah. But what he did was created a problem for the organization to solve. And when they solved it, boom, you've got an iPod and a Walkman is now an obsolete. And then he comes with another problem and says, hey, that iPod, I, uh, we're going to turn it into a phone now. And they're probably like, why are we making cell phones, dude? You know, this doesn't make sense. But now we have the iPhone. So um, <clears throat> when CEOs generally want to create this quantum leap in a company, if you look at Apple, you know, they, they were selling expensive computers and now they have this product, which is the iPod, sells for $125. For the first time, they can target 13-year-olds. That's a whole new market that they never had access to. And so for me, when I look at companies, every company has an untapped market. And so how do you penetrate and create strategies to you know penetrate that market? So they went from creating music devices to cell phones. Then if you know all the things the iPod, iPad can do, they have retail stores. I mean, all of this unprecedented, right? And it, but what it does is it creates an organization where people get to aspire and accomplish things, even though there are challenges that may stretch them beyond the comfort zone, it's, it's, you know, it's empowering to do something that you initially didn't know how to do and you accomplish it, right? So now just, just hold that. I, as running companies, I learned to do that by running companies. So then I became an executive coach and I, you know, I went through a lot of training, like thousands of hours of training uh, to be an executive coach. And it was all about transforming mindset. And, and then and having a business background gave me uh, a lot of legs to stand on in understanding how to work with CEOs, boards of directors, and, and other executives. So now if you understand that transforming corporate culture and getting people to produce breakthroughs, it's all about shifting your mindset and doing things you normally don't do. It's 100% transferable to the relationship world. So when I wrote the book, technically the book is uh, it, it is a corporate handbook and and for uh, conflict resolution, uh, networking, uh, collaborate, co cooperate, you know, collaboration, leadership, like all of that is in a book. So essentially, what I did is I took my 
corporate training and just disguised it in relationships. I put it in I put it in a language and a topic that most people can relate to. So it's like, you know, the spoonful of sugar for, with the medicine goes down in a delightful way, right? So so instead of writing a business book and it's it's, you know, uh it's not just me, these are like, you know, doing like a TED talk, the real TED talk. <laughs> so it's based on a real event where I'm I am with five women who are technically I was invited to a party with about 25 or 30 women. I was the only man in the in the room. Mm. And uh, most women left. It was five and we got into these deep conversations and so this is what it sounded like. So it was almost like a workshop. So there was a lot of back and forth. There was resistance on their part, you know, it's a little comical in some parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's just me interacting and, and giving some of my method to these women and, and talking, you know, juxtaposing business with relationships, you know, just a lot of different ways to look at relationships. Some are very counterintuitive. Some are uh, not comfortable for people to digest. Initially. So, so what, what would you say the top five, top three obstacles to a successful or healthy relationship. So I'd say number one, and this is the other thing. So the the reader goes through a journey of transformation reading it. So it's essentially what I wrote is, um, and I'm going to answer your question. So what I wrote is a book that, uh, that takes a person on a journey of transformation. So you can see how you sabotage your relationships and not just in love relationships, work, family, anything. And it gets to the source. So I'm not giving these sort of, uh, you know, flashy little sayings that make you feel good. It's like it, it causes you to read, you know, read and really get underneath and see how your behavior affects relationships in general. Right. So and the other thing, it forces you to start to look at the number one answer to your question, which is, who is really compatible? And I think this is a huge problem. People don't know who's compatible with them. People may recognize someone who has things in common, like, hey, we both like to travel. We like the same kind of music. Uh, we like entertainment. We, we have the same favorite color. And, you know, there, you know, there is a list of things that you may have in common, but that has nothing to do with compatibility. Okay. And so those things that you have in common don't make a relationship work. So the number one thing is people don't know who's compatible with them. And as a result, they don't know how to look for who's compatible. Uh, Another reason that uh, relationships won't work is uh, transparency, right? So in communicate, if you put transparency in communication, people don't really communicate very well. There's a lot of you should know that. Like, and, and so I've lived in several countries and it's interesting when you live in a, a non-English speaking country, you can no longer rely on you should know that. Like everyone knows that you're in a different culture, different language. And you have you're, you have to be you have to make sure your communication is clear when you speak two different languages, because there are lots of things that, you know, like um, idioms and slang that just don't translate well. So you have to make sure uh, your communication is clear. Uh, I, sex is, is a huge thing in relationships. Uh, there's actually a statistic that says 
Uh, couples that have sex four times a week or more earn higher incomes and are, have more fulfilling relationships. So <clears throat> I think people really underestimate the value of, of sex uh, and they, they use it as a tool. They sort of toy with it. They don't really. I, and I think as humans, we have underestimated, maybe only scratched the surface of how beneficial sex is to us, you know, just overall big, big picture. So mm-hmm. what did I say? Compatibility, uh, communication, sex. <clears throat> and sex is the most intimate form of communication uh, you can have. And I, I actually spend some time in a book talking about, you know, the value of sex and how people, you know, initially come together. It's often a problem right at the beginning of the relationship. Um, unfortunately, I'm, I'm going to say this, Tony, it's like women are in charge of sex when you come into a relationship. And so how are you going to have this adult relationship if only one person is in charge and decides when or if we're going to have sex? I mean, that that becomes very lopsided. <laughs> And a lot of resentment can uh, you know, brew because of that. So it's a, it's a lot of negotiation. <laughs> you know, it, so, you know. And listen, conflict resolution is another. Is number four. We, we're not taught how to resolve conflict. So a lot of times, if you put like communication that's not clear, and things start to go left a little bit, and people don't know how to resolve the conflict. What you'll find is so many couples really don't have problems. They just didn't know how to resolve the conflict. Uh, and, and so they end up getting triggered over things. And there was no reason. There's misinterpretation uh, of things. So uh, conflict resolution is an important element in any, I don't care, any kind of relationship you have. You know, it's that they, they did a poll of executives and corporations and they asked, what's the number one thing you wish you were better at? And they all the majority said conflict resolution. So uh, in your love relationship, if you're not good at resolving conflicts, you're going to be like this. And, you know, and that's why it's good to have a mediator because the mediator will see, wow, you really didn't have a problem. There was just this misunderstanding. If we can go back and, you know, all this other stuff was built on one little misunderstanding five years ago. No, 30 years ago. (laughs) Exactly. I remember you said that and we were at, you know, and... (laughs) Yeah. Um that wow, I have a lot going through my head because we've been together for 32 years and been through a lot. You know, a lot happens in 32 years of life. And you know, I and I remember when we first got married, everybody was giving us all this practical advice. And the number one thing was communicate, communicate. You know, it's like everything is fine on paper. But when you get to practicing it, it becomes a whole nother ball game. Because at the end of the day, we have you have other things that I don't think that you can really research. And that's chemistry, that spirituality, your relationship with God, um, that's um, all of the past history that you bring to the table. Uh, what are you, what are you, what's inside your heart? Uh, what has not been guarded? What have you been exposed to? I mean, there are so many layers and I, I believe that people are brought together to teach each other things. Like I believe that everybody in your life is here to teach you something about yourself. And so, but nobody ever told me that nobody ever said that, you know, Raising kids are going to change your relationship. 
uh, having babies are going to change. In-laws are going to change and have an impact on your relationship. And so um, the, the one thing that I can 100% agree with, with is a mediator, and that's a counselor. Having somebody on speed dial to, to start unpacking what, um, what can impact a relationship. And I really don't think people really know, you know, you know, they get the, those butterflies, initial butterflies when it comes, when you come together, but the real work comes in, in year seven, 15, 22, 27, 30. And, and I don't think you can really account for it. You had this conversation with five, that's my commentary, but now's my question. You had this conversation with these five women. Um, and obviously you said you, you were, I, I'm assuming, are you, are you single or in a relationship or have you ever been in a long-term relationship? What do you call long-term? Uh, what do you call, what do you define as long-term? I, mean, I used to trade stocks on wall street. You know, I was a day trader. Long-term for me was a week. So <laughs> okay, so, so, so that, that's our first problem. <laughs> so I, so I'm saying what, what I'm getting to is relative. So you asked the question. So for me to answer your question, because it's not my question, for me to answer your question, I need to know what long term is. What is your status right now? What is your relationship status? Let's start I'm, with that question. I'm a single man, but you still have you're, to answer. You're my single. Question. Okay, you're single. Okay, yeah. now being single. And you are um, of age, of, of experience. So, communication is so important. So you asked me a question. I really want to answer your question. What is what is long term? Well, I want to I want to break it down. I want to break it down. Yeah. We're going to get to that. So you're a man of age. You you've had relationship experience, correct? I, we, until we establish what's long term, I don't know. <laughs> I, well, you you would consider yourself an authority on relationships, so you you definitely have had some relationship experience. Yeah, uh, uh, yes. I yes. mean, would you say that your relationship experience influenced your writing? You know what influenced it the most when I was and this most people have a difficult time with this. When I was nine years old, I literally started researching, studying human behavior. That is where I, so. And I, I write about that in the beginning of the book because it had a, a profound effect on the, the, the women I was more compatible with. So, and usually I was compatible with women who were much older. When I was at Howard, I, it was interesting the amount of upperclassmen I dated or the women who had already graduated, you know, at high school, you know. So I was 19 already in, involved in, with women who were in their, in their 30s and it was much easier for me to have a relationship with those women than with someone my age. So just, just the, in, in the research that I had done initially was all about women, sexuality, biology, dating preferences. I mean, that's where I started. And part of my motivator was I had heard boyfriends of my aunts say women should come with instructions. So I was going to figure out the instruction manual. So that was, a motivating force. And, you know, there were other things that happened in life that had me want to understand human behavior. And even when I lived abroad, it was still part of that journey because I lived with Mayan Indians in Belize in the jungle with no electricity or running water. And I was looking to see if there were people who were just different from anyone else. And no matter where I went, I went even as far as Greenland 
in, in my travels and I couldn't find humans that was different. So it was like there was one human paradigm. Everyone wanted to eat, sleep, go to the bathroom. They got upset, jealous and happy and angry. And I, I, I saw human beings. I've dined with billionaires here in New York. I mean, literally billionaires. Um, I've spent a lot of time with C, uh, CEOs of Fortune 500. And it just seems to be that people are people. Everyone claims they're different. And that's one of the things that binds people, right? That we all think we're unique and different, but we all learn to walk and talk and feed our, like there's this human experience that we all have. Uh, and so uh, I've dated women from all of the continents. I've dated women when I lived abroad. So you could say I've done a lot of research and in, in dating women and, and interacting and understand what really works. So if I would have married when I was younger, people would have told me that you just got lucky and uh, you found the right woman and, you know, you're, you're lucky. So what I did is in business, you call proof of concept. It means that you have a product, product or service that can be replicated and sold over and over. So what I did is I created a, a way of being in relationships with women. And I wanted to see if it could be done over and over, different age groups, different countries, um, different time periods. None of it ever mattered. So, you know, the longest relationship I had was five years. We lived together five years and I had another three year uh, living relationship. So I don't know if I still don't know if you call that long term, but five and three were the two longest. Uh, and I had I had really good relationships with both both women. Both women expected to marry, uh, and and I didn't. You know, I, there are several women who expected to marry me, but it just didn't happen. Do, do you define marriage as a successful threshold um, in a relationship? So um, I grew up. Not? In a, I grew up in a two-parent household. My parents were high school sweethearts. Uh, so I would say, if you're married, stay married, and you know, and that. Make that a successful union, you know, with whether you're going to raise children, build your legacy, whatever that is. So I, I think marriage is a commitment. It's a legal binding contract. I, so I've never engaged in that. I've, I've done legal binding contracts in business, but not in the marriage sense. Um, so I, I think it it does give an expression of, of commitment uh, that could be beyond just, you know, living together or, or common law. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm, this is, this is a tough question. So, um, if that is, is your value, then, you know, everybody has a book about relationships, people who are married, people who've been married three times, people who have never been married does never mind. Okay. Let me ask, I got two questions, right? So, Marriage, no matter how you slice it, is still a relationship. And so my expertise is in relationships. And I've been, you know, there's a guy, Malcolm Gladwell. He's written several books like Tipping Point and uh, Outliers. And one of the things he talks about in Outliers is when someone has 10,000 hours of practice, experience in something, they generally achieve mastery. So at nine years old, I was diligently religiously, you know, when kids were out playing, I was up in my room reading. 
Uh, and then I would go interview my aunt's friends to validate my finding, findings, right? So I'd be asking them all kinds of questions. So you could say um, my life has been a laboratory. One, one of the concepts you mentioned was um, you mentioned compatibility. Right. Going into a relationship that may or may not end in marriage, how do you enter? What What's the mindset of the two people going into a relationship? That the first thing you you notice in someone is maybe, you know, their physical attributes. Right, right, right. You know, so once you establish that, so how, how do you do negotiate? I'm not negotiate. How do you oh, navigate from there? Negotiate. That, that's a great word. Negotiate. People shouldn't be afraid of that word. Okay. So so how you negotiate or how do you navigate through the steps of a relationship? I mean, because you don't find out whether or not you're compatible with somebody after the first time you meet them. So how, how does that concept work in establishing a relationship and you saying, okay, it's, it's good to move forward? So uh, there, there are several responses to your question. Mm-hmm. The first one is, I just want to give you some statistics. Uh, they've been keeping track of marriage rates in the United States starting in 1865. And right now, marriage rates are lower than they've ever been since they first started uh, recording them. And that's just for, let's say, you know, for in the United States, marriages are lower than they've ever been. And especially when you look at mainstream USA, divorce rates still remain to be around that 50 percent. And where marriage rates have not dropped and the divorce rate has always been very low, is amongst the affluent class. So the affluent still continue to marry. They still see and understand the value of marriage. And a lot of people think, well, it's because they have money and they don't want the marriage to fall apart. And the research says otherwise. What the research says is, is they understand compatibility. And the reason their marriages last and there are even plenty of case studies when the, the guy started a business and it just fell apart. They lost everything, homeless, sleeping out of a car or having to move into you know, one of their parents' home. And even in the face of losing it all, there was no split up, no separation because they were so compatible. They knew they chose the right person. So I'm saying that the affluent, yes, you have this. I'm physically attracted to you. But they are they are engaging one another in such a way that they are looking for compatibility. Tony, you talked about chemistry. I addressed that in my book. And what mo- building a relationship based on chemistry is it has nothing to do with compatibility. If anything, it has to do with our biochemical makeup and it's nature's way of, of making sure we perpetuate the species. It has nothing to do with whether your relationship will work. Uh, And and there's a lot behind, you know, how we depend on this thing called chemistry. Um, Hollywood has some something to do with that also. So uh, the the cut and dry answer to your question, it's funny, I have to say Tony and Tony, right? So, So the cut and dry answer to your question is the reason so many arranged marriages are successful is because it's it's like Tony, you were talking talking about how your in-laws can change your life or your relationship, right? Arranged marriages are a marriage of family values. There's compatibility in the family values. 
how you manage conflict, uh, how you manage money, how you educate your children, uh, sexual compatibility, mental, uh, like mental health compatibility, physical health compatibility, diet, where we want to live, um, how, how we educate ourselves, right? There, there's so many things that are way more important and they don't change over time. Integrity, I would say integrity is at the top of the list, right? So when two families come together and decide whether our children should marry, they're looking. So you're, you're, you know, as a woman, a guy can be a player and say all the smooth lines and make you feel good. And there's so much chemistry and, and he knows all the right things to do. I mean, there are literally men out there who will mimic certain characters from movies and women will love the guy. And there's so much chemistry because they're familiar with that kind, you know, with that kind of guy. And maybe they had an affinity for the movie and the character and, and it worked. It really does work. But when you get your father and your grandfather and your uncle, they're not falling for that. They're looking for this guy and, and what his values are and what his future might be. So uh, I, I think part of our challenge and why we have such high divorce rate is because for thousands of years, you've we've had either arranged or semi-arranged, you know, you've had involvement with your family and your decision making. And now for the past, I don't know, 70 years, we've just been like going on our own and we haven't figured it out. We don't know what's compatible. And if you look at the Hollywood and the kind of influence, it influences how people make decisions. And those decisions have more to do with Hollywood fantasy as opposed to what really works. Um, just, uh, you mind if I give a historical fact? No, go right ahead. Okay. So there's a guy, uh, his name is John Keats. He wrote a book back in uh, at like 1817, 18, uh, around 1819, somewhere around there. And the book, the title was La Belle Dame Sans Merci. I forget the exact translation, <clears throat> but it was a love. It was a love story. It was a novel. And back when he wrote it, no one really cared about it. By the 1850s, the book caught on. It hooked. It like it hooked on, caught on to culture. And, and instead of people getting married for arranged marriages and building legacies and, you know, putting like before. Like your parents would have owned 50 acres and your parents would own 50 acres. We put them together. Now we've got 100 acres. We're building generational wealth. We're preparing our children. Like that's what marriage was happening. It was a legal binding contract. Well, this book changed that. It started people thinking about romance and flowers and chemistry and all these things that have nothing to do with building generational wealth in a, in a powerful marriage. And so fast forward, that book is now all over Hollywood and the media. It's in music. It's in everything. So we've been completely derailed. It's not really part of the education. So perhaps when you look at the affluent, you're looking at uh, children growing up in a household, a two-parent household, where the divorce rate, I think, is like 9%. Uh and they still continue to get married. The parents value marriage. They work together. They collaborate. So as a child, you're being educated. You're seeing your parents be compatible. You have a great example. Uh, you're, you're watching. You know, one of the things that happens uh, is amongst the affluent, and I've seen it, uh, those wives are, are extraordinary networkers. 
You know, when you talk about guys like Henry Ford and you understand what was happening in the background and no one ever heard his wife was back there weaving a web of, of networks and investors. And, uh, you know, she met other women who may have been married to uh, guys who became employees or or clients or, or something else. So the, the sort of the way the the affluent work together is very much like a relationship is a team sport. So. But to do that, you have to understand things like integrity and you, you can't be afraid to ask these really tough questions and we avoid them because we don't want to turn the person off. But you know what? We need to talk about sex. We need to talk about integrity. We need to talk about where we how we want to educate and discipline our children. You know, there's a there's a, a bunch of things that we need to have real conversations, not just glaze over it and touch the surface and say, we talked about it. You need to really dive in and see, do we really see eye to eye in these, you know, how do we manage money? Yeah, you, you, you make a very good point. Uh, what, what comes to mind as I was listening to you speak was the whole concept of the, the marriage contract and the families coming together. Right. That's something that really doesn't take place a lot. In the in the U.S., right. you yeah. know, and, and in Africa, right. yep. you know, it's your you you married to the families, and it's encouraged, you know that that whole um, arrangement is um, is is etched in the relationship. So you 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 forced to have compatibility. No, not no. The family. So there there are. There's, she's from Ghana. She was born here, except the guy she wanted to marry, she had to get permission from her father. And the families spent, I don't know, a week, a couple of weeks, they spent time with one another. And the families had to see if they were compatible. And she said initially her father was against it. And the guy had to convince her father that I am the guy before the father gave his blessings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I was trying to say. Right. That, that, doesn't take place in America in a lot of marriages. So to Tony's point, that's where things are thrown off the rail if you don't have that foundation. Well, I'm going to tell you what, Ted, I, I, what I learned from this, you know, having four children, my oldest is already married. What I learned from this is to get involved mm. with the process. Yes you know, not picking their mate or anything like that, but making an effort to have a relationship with the in-laws. I, I think that support system helps have that foundation and security if the families can get along and have a relationship. Do that. Now the families have a vested interest in the success of the union. And so there becomes this support structure, whether it's babysitting, uh, resolving a conflict, like the couple, the couple is getting into a conflict. It's like, and, and as more mature people, you can see, oh, they, you know, they don't see that this is such a, you know, they're making a mountain out of a molehill and it was just a misunderstanding and you can help them negotiate and navigate. Uh, and they may not have the same experience and communication and, and insight you have, but because the families have a vested interest, 
They want to see them work through the conflict. And, and you know, couples are going to go through some sort of conflict. It just happens, right? And that's why I say conflict resolution is extremely important. People really should get training in that. Well, you know, we're always looking for solutions on yeah, this yeah. Um, at Black Family Table Talk. And I think, Ted, I think you have provided some insight into what people can do to move forward. Just, And I think everything that we can get when it comes to surviving as Black families is, is important. So I do think you have something to contribute. I was going to give you the business for being not being married and yet giving advice on marriage. But I decided that I would listen. And I'm glad I listened because I do believe you have some insight. So I just want to thank you so much for being open and sharing your research and your knowledge and your life experience, and more importantly, your story, so that maybe some people can get something, a nugget or two that they can take and put in their Black family toolbox for use in the future. Oh, thank you. And, and one of the solutions is to read my book. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. How can um, people get in yes. touch with you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can find me on social media, Facebook. Um, you can find me on Instagram, you know, under my name, Ted Santos, LinkedIn. Uh, my email, if you'd like to personally get a book signed from me, it's T, like Ted Santos, at turnaroundip.com. And IP is like intellectual property. Well, we appreciate that. That's Black Family Table Talk. That's what's up. We can take care. Pleasure. That concludes this week's talk. We hope you found some tools to add to your strong Black Family Toolbox. And be sure to sign up for a free subscription at BlackFamilyTableTalk.com for special discounts and product offers reserved exclusively for you. Don't forget to tell a friend about our weekly podcast and blog available on Apple Pod, Google, Pandora, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are heard. Under Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976, allowance is made for fair use for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, and research. Fair use is abuse permitted by copyright statute that may otherwise be infringing. The news and opinions expressed on Black Family Table Talk do not necessarily reflect various platform posts. All topics are for entertainment purposes, discretion is strongly advised, and all commentary is alleged. This is a Micah 68 Media LLC production.